name of the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, St. Joseph, St. Peter, St. Thomas, all you holy angels, saints, special patron saints, and guardian angels, and Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Amen. Uh, I'm going to start by reading a quote. It's taken from a book written uh, over 20 years ago, a book written by a witch. It's about witchcraft. I'm not joking. And uh, I'm not going to tell you the name of the book for obvious reasons, but I think this is an important quote, and we'll see why in a minute. But this is a, keep in mind, this is a book about witchcraft and and neo-paganism written by a witch uh, in the 80s. The world is, well, let me back up. Well, neo-paganism and modern Wicca are very anarchistic religions. It is probably wrong to say that all pagans believe this or that, speaking of neo-pagans here in America. There are some basic beliefs that most neo-pagans in America share. The world is holy. Nature is holy. The body is holy. Sexuality is holy. The mind is holy. The imagination is holy. You are holy. A spiritual path that is not stagnant ultimately leads one to the understanding of one's own divine nature. Thou art goddess. Thou art God. Divinity is imminent in all nature. It is as much within you as without. In our culture, which has for so long denied and denigrated the feminine as negative, evil, or at best small and unimportant, women and men too will never understand their own creative strength and divine nature until they embrace the creative feminine, the source of inspiration, the goddess within. Well, one can at times be cut off from experiencing the deep and ever-present connection between oneself and the universe. There is no such thing as sin, unless it is simply defined as that estrangement between oneself and the universe. And guilt is never very very useful. The energy you put into the world comes back. Close quote. Why am I starting with this? To get some context. This was written 20 years ago, but that's the worldview that we all live in. That's the general worldview in America. That is the way our culture thinks right now. We live in a profoundly paganized culture. You can, if you want to envision the American culture right now, you can think of an egg where you have this seething mass of neo-paganism, witchcraft, all these sort of things, with only the thinnest veneer, the shell, That's the remnants of a very weak and attenuated Protestant Christianity. That is the America we live in. I don't know what the crystallizing event that will be when they realize that they really dominate the culture. These people still think they're the counterculture. I drove over here on on the way over, stopped at one of the rest stops, walking around in there with people with chains and, you know, ornaments hanging out of every place on their face and whatnot. I'm not making fun of them. It's everywhere. I'm from Montana. There's paganism everywhere up there. I see more of it there than I do here. Our culture is profoundly pagan. We are the counterculture. 
So what I want to talk to, to you today about is countercultural in the most profound way. When we live in a culture like this, we can't take our cues from the culture. Something that's ordered right for a Catholic person, if you have a good culture, it helps, it supports you, it floats you up, it makes it easier to do the right thing and harder to do the wrong thing. But we have exactly the opposite kind of culture where it's difficult to do the right thing. It means you really have to have a firm commitment to being countercultural, which means committed to our Lord. And it's difficult to do the right thing with all the social pressure and easy to do the wrong thing. I don't have to tell you that. That's just reality. The reality is right now, everything we're going to talk about today is countercultural. The other thing I'd say about everything we're going to talk about today, you could call this is stuff that your grandparents or great-grandparents all knew and would be surprised we had to talk about it. Because hopefully I'm not going to be original at all. I try very hard not to be original. And I'm going to try to not... uh, That'll work a little bit. I'm trying very hard not to be original because I don't want to give you any original ideas. I just want to tell you what the truth is. Okay, so we're going to start off with some real basics and work our way up. In the beginning, you'll think, yeah, we already know that. First thing, we have to make sure we're really clear what we're doing here. What is it that we're doing here? And I don't just mean here, but on earth. What is the purpose of our life? If we don't know the purpose of something, we can't use it intelligently. I've said this to people before. Many people have heard me say that. Certainly I say it a lot at the parish. If you were sitting, if you were going to visit somebody and they picked up a violin, they're sitting there, you got flies buzzing around. There's a violin, they pick it up and they go to swacking the flies with a violin. Well, first off, you think, what are these people, lunatics? But second off, what would happen? They're going to break that violin because that's not what violins are made for. Violins have a purpose. It's a delicate instrument. And if you swat flies with it, you're not going to have a violin anymore. You're going to have a lot of broken wood and, 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 and stuff poking all, all over the place. The more delicate an instrument, and, and the easier it is to wreck it. We have to know the purpose of something to use it intelligently. What's the purpose of our life? If we don't use ourselves intelligently, we'll destroy ourselves just as surely as that violin was destroyed. Yeah. Great, that's good, perfect. Yeah. We have to use ourselves intelligently. So what's the purpose? We all know that. It's the second question. The first question is, who made me? God made me. Why did God make me? That's the purpose of our life. God made me to know Him and love Him and serve Him in this life and be happy with Him forever in the next. Now that, believe it or not, is a newsflash to a lot of people. Before I went to the seminary, I was teaching at graduate school and undergrads at Montana State University. And we get in these kind of conversations sometimes with these, these guys. These are not bad people. But, you know, you have guys that have had too much to drink going, ah, I wonder what the purpose of my life, what, you know, what are we supposed to be doing? So they're having these discussions like, what am I supposed to do? They don't know. We're in a culture that people don't even know why they've been placed here on earth. So it's not something you want to do an experiment with. You have to get that part right. Well, we all know that, the purpose of our life. If we don't live according to the purpose in our life, we won't get where we want to go. And ultimately, it's a two-way cut, and we don't want to go to plan B. That's just no. Purgatory is like summer school, right? You didn't flunk. But you didn't pass either. You know, you got to sit there and barbecue for a while before you get out of there. But everybody in purgatory is saved, right? You know, okay, shoot for heaven. If you hit purgatory, that's all right. Don't shoot for purgatory because if you miss that one, that's not so good. Okay, the possibilities are heaven and hell, right? Ultimately, at the end of the world, there's no more purgatory. That's it. Two-way cut. We want to go to heaven. So we got to know, love, serve God in this life and be happy with Him forever and the next. Now, on that path, 
to heaven. And there's only one. But on that path, there are different channels you can think of it. Okay, those would be the different possible states of life. Okay, for guys, there's four possibilities. Priest, religious, married, single. For women, uh, you know, except for some very confused ones that we have to pray for, it's uh, married, religious, or single. Okay, those are the possibilities. And God has a plan for each one of us from all eternity. That's the astonishing thing. If we think about it, from all eternity, God knew each one of us and he loved us. And he has a plan, a particular plan, so that we will be happy in this life and the next with him. He loved us so much, he gave us the true faith. That in itself is something that we can spend all eternity thanking him for if we get to the right place. huh? But he has a plan, and that plan involves making sure that we get in the right groove there on the path to heaven. All right. Obviously, everybody has to keep the Ten Commandments. They're not ten relatively good ideas. They're Ten Commandments. No option, ways to opt out. We have to keep that. We have to stay in the state of grace. huh? We have to practice the, the, the commandment of charity. The one commandment our Lord gave at the la- Last Supper, huh? That, that, we, that we love one another as He loved us. So we show that. That's not some emoting thing. I mean, you might have feelings, but it's showing that we really believe in our Lord. By, by how we act and how we deport ourselves. Okay, obviously that's for everybody. But within that, then those particular states of life, what's my vocation? We have to know our vocation. If you're not praying every day to know that, you need to, till you know it. God's given you one, so he's obliged, if you ask him, to let you know what it is. That doesn't necessarily mean right away, and it doesn't mean you, that you're looking for some kind of vision or apparition or something. You're just praying to you know, what is it your will for me to do with my life? Huh? So we've got to be asking that. St. John Bosco says about... 30% of you will have a vocation of religion or the, or the priesthood. So that leaves the other two-thirds roughly. There's people that are going to be in the single state because of, of duties in their life. That's always been that way. But we'll just roughly rough it off to about two-thirds. We'll have a vocation of marriage, roughly speaking. And we're going to spend our time talking about that because it's so confusing for, for many people. And we'll make this clear. So again, all this beginning is really clear. Marriage. If we have a vocation of marriage, we're just going to grant priesthood, religious, all that. that we're not going to deal with that in the time we have. Marriage. What is the purpose of marriage? This seems to be all over the place. You know, when you're in a, in a profoundly neo-pagan society like ours, who knows? And I don't need to go through all the iterations and weird permutations that are coming up all the time these days. You, you almost burst into laugh. If it wasn't so serious, you'd be laughing every time you, you know you come in contact with the newspaper and see what they're doing in California. And it won't be long, you know, not to pick on California. It'll move this way soon enough. And from Canada south, and from California east, and and, and you know from Massachusetts west, and it's all going to cr- you know smack together here sooner or later. Anyway, what's the purpose of marriage? There's a primary and secondary purpose of marriage. These are from God. I'm just, I'm, I'm not, not making this stuff up in this report. What's the primary purpose of marriage? The primary purpose for which God created marriage is the procreation and education of children. That is the primary purpose. The secondary purpose is for mutual comfort and remedy for concupiscence. So procreation and education of children is the primary end of marriage. Secondary is mutual comfort and health and remedy for concupiscence. That's what marriage is. It's in, and it's in that order. Okay, all these things are, are principles. Having said that, then, uh, what we want to ask ourselves is, if that's what marriage is, 
And I think I have a vocation to marriage because I've been praying to God and I know I have to get to heaven, granting everything that we just said. I've got a vocation to marriage as far as I know. I've got to get to heaven. I've got to keep the commandments and so forth. And marriage is for the procreation, education of children and mutual help and comfort, reverie for concupiscence. Then obviously, given all that, we can see what the purpose of keeping company is. We'll get into that. I'm going to use words like dating. Dating is not a word I like at all. And we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll make it clear as we go on what we're talking about. Uh, courtship, we'll talk mostly about that, keeping company. But I'm going to use them loosely right now. We'll refine them a little bit, but I'm not going to give absolute definitions because it's, you know, I'm not the Webster's Dictionary. But we'll, we'll get you on the page to see what we're talking about at this point. Okay, obviously, given all that, I have to say to myself, if I have a vocation of marriage, then I have to start thinking, what, well, what, how does dating fit in that? The first thing we have to realize is, Dating, or keeping company, is not a form of recreation. That's what our society would say it is. This is what people do for fun. You know, this is recreation. Go bowling, have a date, whatever. No, it's not recreation at all. Recreation is not a sufficient reason to enter in a situation like that. The purpose for courtship, for keeping company seriously, and we're not talking about what's going on here. We'll get to that later. But the purpose, and the only purpose, is courtship. For, for keeping company with somebody. What's courtship? Is this somebody that I'm going to spend my life trying to get to heaven with? You know, the young man says, this is the woman that, that can best help me get to heaven and that I can spend my life sacrificing for her to help her get to heaven. And the young woman says the same thing. This is the young man that I can best help me get to heaven and I can spend my life helping get to heaven. That's the purpose of keeping company. It's, it's courtship. If that isn't the purpose, it's already wrong, period. Close the book. It's already wrong. We don't have to look out at what everybody else does. What everybody else is doing, who knows what they're doing? Casting spells? I don't know. It doesn't matter what they're doing. We're here to try to get to heaven. and Our reference point isn't what everybody else is doing, especially in a culture like ours. Our reference point has to be, what does God want of me? What is God asking me? What does God want me to do? Okay, so the purpose of keeping company is to determine, is this the man or is this the woman that I'm going to marry? Is this the person whom I can best spend my time, uh, who will help me get to heaven, and I can spend my life helping to get to heaven? Eternity hangs on the correct answer to that question. And it matters. It is a vocation. I remind everybody here that a vocation is a calling from God. It is not a default setting. I'm not sure what to do, therefore I will get married. Danger, you know, I mean, in a society like ours. Our society is not going to help make it easy if you're having a rough time. Believe me, as a priest, that's not going to happen. A lot of what priests do is try to help good people make it through it. Very good people. It's not, it's a vocation. It's a, I have a vocation, and you have a vocation. If the vocation is to marriage, we have to make sure that we're doing it on God's plan. Well, not, I wasn't just bored one day and found a bishop and gave him a hundred bucks and told him to ordain me, you know, or something. You have to be careful what you're doing. Same thing. You don't you're just bored one day. You go have a drink. She looks cute. You marry her. No, it's a vocation. You want to make sure you get it right. Eternity hangs on it. Okay, guys. Next, I'm going to start with some unpleasant things. We'll develop it though. But if you're sure that you have a vocation to marriage, we'll talk to the guys first. But you're not yet capable of being married. What do I mean by capable? You can't put a roof overhead and food on the table. That doesn't mean, you know, some giant mansion or something like that, but it means a roof overhead and it means food on the table. If you can't do that or you're too young or you're not pretty darn close to being able to do that, then you've got no business keeping company. 
You've got no business keeping company. It doesn't mean that you don't get to know young ladies. We'll get to that later. But you have no business keeping company with one. Why? You owe that first off to God, second off to her. Don't waste your time. Get with the program. If this is the girl that the, the good Lord wants you to marry, then you get with the program. What did they do back in the day? I mean, I know in my family, but it's your, you ask your grandparents what their parents did. The young guy oftentimes had to leave home and, and go find uh, work somewhere and get enough money to come back and marry his best girl. That was standard Catholic practice. I'm sure it was standard in the process. Everybody had it the same way because they knew what it was like. The culture hadn't forgotten. Why? Because you got to provide for. Okay, so that's number one. Is guys, you, uh, if, you don't, if, you're, if you're too young or you're not yet capable, even if you're old enough but you can't put a roof overhead and food on the table or you're not proximate to being able to do that, don't keep company with her. Get going with it and, and uh, be a man and get with the program. Ladies, same thing. If you're confident that you have a vocation of marriage but you're not yet capable of being married, you're too young, then you have no business keeping company. Don't, and this is really important, ladies, don't let a man court you who can't put a roof over your head and food on the table, okay? Or he isn't really close to being able to do that. You are the motive. You can motivate him, huh? Tell him to, sweet talking isn't going to feed the kids, okay? You tell him, grow up, get with the program. And uh, if he's the right guy, he'll, he'll get with the program. You know, that's how guys are. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but... But that's the goal, okay? If he's not there, then you say, well, you know, get with it, come back, two years, whatever, we'll see. He, you got more at stake. Don't let him waste your time. You want to marry a man, don't waste your time with a boy. It's not a chronological thing. There's a lot of guys in their 50s that are boys, really, you know. I mean, it's a question of an interior decision to grow up and be a man. And you can help in that. But if, if he's a neat guy and you think, well, all right, but he can't take care of Tell them, you got to get with the program, you know. You don't do it in a real, you know, just tell them. Because flat out, I'm not going out with somebody like that. I'm not going to commit myself to somebody who can't put a roof over it. Again, I'm not, you could live in a wall tent. I don't care. I'm, you know, I know people back home living in a wall tent. It wouldn't bother me as a priest. It might freak out the chancery, but it wouldn't bother me as a priest to marry people if they're living in a wall tent. As long as you live in a wall tent, if you're a trapper or something, I don't know if that's a big business here in Kansas, but back home, that's no big deal. But if you follow him, but you got to make sure he can do that and keep the food on the table. Don't let him go out with your court until he can. You're not doing him any favors and you're wasting your time. You know it's not the will of God to marry this guy yet, so it's not the will of God to court the guy right. Let the guy court, court you right then. It's, it's obvious once you put it like this. got to be careful with your feelings. We'll get to that later. Okay, so that's it. We're just trying to go through principles here. Next one. If you're confident you have a vocation marriage and you're ready to be married, and you're keeping company, but you realize this just isn't the right one for you, break it off right then. Don't start saying, well, we have a lot of time invested and we've taught it. No, break it off right then. We're talking about a salvation issue. It's a question of honesty with God. It's a question of personal integrity with the other person. You owe it to that other person, whether you're a guy or girl, to break it off right then. And if we're following the rules, which we'll get to later, it won't, it, it'll be somewhat of an event, but it won't be a major trauma. Because if we follow the rules, you can do these things and, and with respect to each other if you've been respecting God's rules, and it's not that big of an event. It, it, it shouldn't be that big of an event, okay? But if you're not, if you don't have that kind of integrity, if you don't have that kind of honesty, you're danger, endangering your salvation and the salvation of this other person. Don't do that. And you're talking about full steam ahead through icebergs. Don't. Do the experiment. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't think we're going to get through it. Just don't do it. Disaster. Guard your heart. Break it up. Okay. Am I saying 
Young women, let's, before we go on, am I saying that young women and young women, men are supposed to be hermetically sealed, isolated from each other, never have any contact, don't talk to each other, etc., etc.? No, absolutely not. I mean, that sort of thing is an overreaction. It's going to have horrific consequences because in the first, they go guy crazy or girl crazy, and the first time someone winks at them, it's all over with, and they think, oh, I'm in love, and they've got to get married. No, these things are great. Something like this is perfect because this is the ideal sort of situation is reasonably supervised groups of young men and young women getting to know each other in a good situation. That's perfect. Friendly acquaintances, generally speaking, are fine. What's not fine is courting, separating in, in, in inappropriate company keeping between one young man and one young woman before the right time. What's the right time? When he, she's old enough to be married and he is mature enough to take care of her, huh? which isn't so much age, but actually uh, you know, a, a question of being able to put a roof over the head, food on the table. Okay, God has created us in a certain way, and the fallen man has wounded us in a certain way. And if we ignore either of those things, because of dreamy dreams or something like that, our passions can get out of control, and then we're going to be another wreck. We just don't want to ignore any of that. Okay, so, now... Uh, if you're not reasonably sure you have a vocation of marriage, you have no business courting. I'm coming back to the first point because I'm going to develop it. It's, an, it's presumption. It's a sin of presumption to be, to be courting before the right time. Why? Because oh, I'm going to read you just a principle right now and you'll see why. It is a sin of presumption. Why? <clears throat> because courtship or company keeping is an occasion of sin. Now I'm going to read through that and explain to you all the details. I'm not trying to freak you out. I'm reading right from a standard manual. The manual is a, this is a manual of pastoral theology. This is what you use to train priests. Okay? Quote, Company keeping with the intention of timely marriage. Timely marriage. If you can't, put a roof over your head and food on the table. It isn't pretty close to being able to do that. It's not going to be timely. Company keeping with the intention of timely marriage can be considered as a necessary occasion of sin. Since in our society, at least people do not marry strangers. However, those keeping company, and especially the engaged, must use the ordinary supernatural and natural means whereby the near occasion of falling into sin is made remote, especially with regards of circumstances of being alone together, close quote. All right. Well, I'm going to unpack that for quite a while right now so that we see what we mean by that. Brief review. What is an occasion of sin? Any person, place, or thing that tempts a man to sin. Any person, place, or thing that tempts a man to sin. There are four occasions, types of occasion of sin. These are opposed to each other. There's what's called a remote occasion of sin and a near occasion of sin. A remote occasion of sin. Our society is a remote occasion of sin. You can get in trouble, you know, almost anywhere you go. That's a remote occasion of sin. A near occasion of sin is like, uh-oh, this is one in which men always or nearly always fall. Okay? So a remote occasion of sin is just, it's available, you can get in trouble. A near occasion of sin is, this is real trouble, okay? So if somebody, you know, anyway, we'll get into that. So, remote situation in which men seldom fall, near situation in which men always or nearly always fall, okay? So if somebody walks into a house and there's stacks of pornographic magazines all over the place, the average man, unless he gets out of there mighty quickly or starts the place on fire, is going to be in trouble. That's just reality. That's a near occasion of sin. And if all this pornography is laying out visible... It's going to, he has to be blind not to see it. He has to get out of there quick. That's in your occasion of sin. Men always or nearly always fall. Okay? Voluntary. What else? So remote, not such a big deal. Near, always or nearly always fall. Voluntary occasion of sin. This is something that can be avoided. You voluntarily put yourself into it. 
You know, so voluntary occasional sin, I know that I shouldn't go do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know, or I shouldn't be around this, but I'm going to be around. That's voluntary. Where you, you know it. Unnecessary cannot be avoided, at least without serious loss. Necessary cannot be avoided, or at least not without serious loss. If you're locked up in a cell with someone that's an occasion of sin to you, you can't get away from them. That's a necessary occasion of sin, you know. Or there's also a necessary occasion of sin cannot be avoided, at least not without serious loss. Men must take the proper precautions in order to avoid falling. I'm going through this review, and then we'll, we'll apply it to, to courtship. An occasion of sin, any person, place, or thing that tempts a man to sin, a remote occasion of sin is a situation in which man rarely sins. You have a bottle of whiskey in, in the cupboard. You know, okay. A near occasion in a situation in which men always or nearly always fall viewing pornography. Voluntary occasion can be removed. A necessary occasion can't be avoided, at least not without grievous loss. But men have to take the proper precautions in order to avoid falling. So, let's ask ourselves a couple questions. Are we allowed to put ourselves in occasion of sin? It depends. It depends on what kind of occasion of sin we're talking are we allowed to put ourselves in a remote occasion of sin? Sure. Walking around is a remote occasion of sin. They're remote. Okay, we could get in trouble, but okay. How about near occasion of sin? Are we allowed to put ourselves in near occasion of sin? It depends. If it's necessary or voluntary. If it's a voluntary near occasion of sin, the answer is no. We can't voluntarily put ourselves into harm's way. That's what we're promising not to do when we make the act of contrition. Remember, you promised to mend your life. We promised to avoid sin and the near occasion of sin. We mean voluntary near occasion of sin. We're promising God we're not going to do that. We're not going to purposely put ourselves in harm way and then say, hey, don't let me fall, don't let me fall. That's presumption, if everybody sees it. That's the sin of presumption, to know that this is really dangerous for you, but I'm just going to get put myself into that. Okay, so it's a voluntary occasion of sin. We can't voluntarily put ourselves in If it's a near occasion of sin, but it's necessary, we can put ourselves into it if we take the proper precautions. The more serious the near occasion, the more serious we have to make these precautions. Okay? Because we're dancing on the edge of a slippery cliff. So we have to be more and more cautious. Okay? Now, I'll go back through that quote and then we'll, we'll see how that applies to courtship. Again, here's the quote. Company keeping with the intention of timely marriage can be considered as a necessary occasion of sin. It's a necessary near occasion of sin. Since in our society at least people do not marry strangers. However, those keeping company, especially engaged, must use the ordinary supernatural and natural means whereby the near occasion of falling into sin is made remote, especially with regard to the circumstances of being alone together. Close quote. Two points then. First, company keeping is a necessary occasion of sin. It's ne- Why is it necessary? You don't marry strangers. Not in our society. We don't have arranged marriages for the most part in America. So, you know, and and it's necessary because it's a grievous loss if you have the vocation to be to, to to holy matrimony. It's a grievous loss not to have a holy and virtuous spouse. So, okay, dating then or courtship or company keeping is serious business, not a form of recreation. That's just another way of saying it. it's serious business because it's company keeping with the, the mind to timely marriage. That's the whole idea. It's not like this is going to be fun. You know, obviously, someone that's going to get married says, I really hate this person. I'm going to spend some time with them. You know, you, you want to be around them. That's, the whole, uh, that's, that's an, a no-brainer at that point, but it's not recreation. Second, because it's a necessary occasion of sin, you have to use ordinary, supernatural, and natural means to make sure that the near occasion of falling is made remote. What are the precautions? Here's St. Alphonsus, doctor of moral theology. St. Alphonsus, quote, There are three principal means to be 
prescribed in necessary occasions. Now note, I'm going to quote him and look at the situation that St. Alphonsus is talking about. This is from a moral manual. Guess what St. Alphonsus is talking about? Well, you can figure it out. There are three principal means to be prescribed in necessary occasions. The first is to avoid as much as possible being alone with one another. He's talking about courtship. When he uses the example, the doctrine of moral theology is talking about courtship. Avoid as much as possible being alone with one another, speaking confidentially with one another, or looking at one another. That's the first one. The second is prayer, an unceasing petition to God and the Blessed Virgin. To pray. That doesn't mean you don't look at each other. It means you don't just sit there and, you know, do these long, long, you know, dangerous gazes till, you know, with nobody around. Okay. The second is prayer, an unceasing petition to God and the Blessed Virgin for help to resist the temptation. The third is the frequentation of the sacraments of penance and of the Eucharist by which strength is obtained to resist temptation. Close quote. This is the doctor of moral theology. Read souls. Bilocate, all these different things, all kinds of miracles. You know, gazillions of confessions. He knows what human nature is like. Human nature hasn't changed in the past 200 and some years. You know, he died right about in 1789, I think. There hasn't been a lot of change since then, you know. Uh, hairstyles. And we got electricity. Big deal. Okay. Let's break it down. We'll start with the natural precautions that a couple must observe. Okay. First, natural way it means is avoid as much as possible being alone with each other. There's an old priest saying, Solus cum sola, nandicunt ave Maria. Father will laugh, but that means when there's a guy alone with a girl, they're not saying Hail Marys. You might start, but that, that's just reality. We all know this. I mean, that's not a, it's not particularly surprising. That's why everybody that's been saying has, has thought, well, chaperone's a good idea. A chaperone is a fantastic idea. You know a good chaperone from your big family is the little brother, the little sister to take, you know, everywhere. You're not going to get in a lot of trouble with them and they'll tell everything that happens. It's great. And so, take advantage of that, you know. It's awesome. And, you know, it, it, why not? It's, it's, it's a fantastic thing. It's cheap. It's easy. You, you're not going to go anywhere you shouldn't go, get in anything you shouldn't do. Everybody sane has recognized this principle. And it's shown respect in the first place for God. The second place is for this person that you love. If you love them, what do you want to do? You want to honor them, huh? Especially the guy should really want to honor that woman. And make sure that nobody could ever say anything. No way. You know, there's always been somebody around. That's really important. Even if reputation has flown out the window in our culture, it still hasn't before God. And that, that should be a point of pride in the authentic Catholic sense, a point of pride for every young man that's courting a girl. It should be a real point of pride that he's done that that way with her, that he hasn't let himself be alone with her. It's, it, it really should be a point of pride. I mean that. And it's not undoable. Where there's a will, there's a way. But there's a will, there's a way. Okay. All right, second one, avoid as much as possible speaking confidentially with one another. This is important for women to understand. I say this a lot, but I'm not going to develop everything from the Garden of Eden here, but you can understand all the different problems if you meditate long enough or read what the fathers have to say on the Garden of Eden. How did Eve fall? The serpent was talking to her. Women... Are, are, are easily talked into things. Women typically fall through the ears. The ears are the weak point on a woman. That's where you, you know, we have these expressions, the silver-tongued devil, stuff like that. Maybe you don't have them in this part of the world, but uh, it, it, the sweet talker, all these kind of things. You have all these expressions. Now, there's nothing wrong with sweet talking, per se. This is not a sin. The problem is, 
is if you're not married, it can get carried away really easily because we're, we're all weak. But there's nothing wrong with sweet talking per se, okay? Women have to be careful about sweet talk and by extension, romantic things that relate to that. Uh, love notes, romantic lovers, and so forth. Uh, sweet talking isn't bad. It depends on what's being said and what the motives are. And so a lot of confidential talking by the fall of man will naturally descend over a period of time when people are courting. That's why there's a certain period of time courting you want them to get married. It's not their fault. It's because of Adam. You've got to get married before a certain period of time because you jumped in a river and it's going to the ocean and you've got to make sure you're married before you get there. And this kind of talk just of itself, and it's not bad, but it leads more and more to certain, certain things. And because of the weakness of man, if you allow yourself to go on and on and on, and unfortunately, that's one of the things about cell phones I have to say, you know, there's plenty of good things I suppose a person could say, but don't make yourself completely available on a cell phone. You know, control that to some degree. I do not say do not talk to somebody, but you should write things out, like how long, how much you can speak per week, uh, you know, and, and it should be pretty controlled, and how long you're going to speak at those times, and what hours you're not going to speak after, and, and the later it is, the more danger it is. I'm totally serious. I'm not making this up. I mean, ask any sober priest, they'll tell you the same kind of things if you think about it. So you should have it written down if you're courting somebody. We'll get to that if, if I get time. I've had to really, I'm trying to get 50 pounds of stuff in a five pound sack in this one hour, so I might not get to every detail, but that's something to think about. Anyway, so sweet talking can be good. Husbands certainly have a moral obligation to emotionally support their wives with that kind of thing, and he took a vow to take care of her. It could be sinful if he's not doing that, huh? But, uh, ladies, when you're being courted, you might not determine his motives. This is another reason. There's natural systems built in to defend ladies. One is called dad. That's the first line of defense. The second line of defense is called mom. And the third one, the brothers. Huh? And, and listen to them. My poor sister. Luckily, some of the boys moved away from home. But, uh, you know, she did finally get married. But uh, <laughs> Brothers are a good thing if you have brothers. It doesn't matter if they're little or bigger in terms of size. They just have to be kind of ornery. And uh, you want to interview. Because we know how guys think. And then your mom, you should trust your intuition. Because... You know, I, I was just over to some sisters yesterday and they're doing so. It's just amazing how they can take a couple of things that to a guy are completely unconnected and put a package together like that. It's something great about how women think. And I'm not making fun of it. It is amazing. You know, I mean, uh, how they, they get a picture. It's important to rely on that, too, because a woman a lot of times will will smell a rat, too. You want to do that because it matters. It matters. We've got to... We gotta observe the guy. Okay. Anyway, it doesn't mean that, that women didn't fall too. I don't mean that, but we gotta observe it. Okay. Anyway, but it's important for dads to to interview the guy that wants to court his daughter. I found something. I've read this before, but it, I take a, a little ranch paper from back home. It's called the Agri News, and uh, I'll read you a little quote to put it in context. Uh, this author, in this point, is writing about a ranch couple that's raising. Uh, Kids, quote, I'm sure it's coincidental, but while they were raising three lovely and popular daughters, every single time some boys showed up to pick up one of the girls for a date, obviously I'm not for this, but every time boys showed up to pick up one of the girls for a date, dad would just happen to be cleaning his rifles at the table. <laughs> that was the nicest set of young men, and so mannerly too. <laughs> Breaking curfew just wasn't done, close quote. All right, uh, dads have to have an atmosphere of healthy fear. I'm not necessarily suggesting that, um, but... I'm not necessarily saying it's wrong either. It's not a uh, Yeah, anyway. So, but don't say to yourself, you know, because 
as, as priests start saying this, oh, Father, relax, you know, I can handle it, this is kind of silly and all that. Those, that kind of thought right now, you can put that, there's a category, that called, that's called famous last words. Okay? Famous, uh, don't say I can handle it. Just, I'm giving you stuff. I don't make this stuff up, okay? It, it has a funny Montana accent, but I don't make it up. I'm in sales, not management. I'm just telling you how things are. And if you don't like my delivery, that's fair enough. But this is just how things are. You've got to think seriously. Our culture isn't going to help you out. The people around us, I don't mean here, but in the larger circles of American society, are not going to help us do the right thing. They already think we're weirdos. We're counter-cultural. That's not bad either. The reason I started with the quote for witchcraft is, do you want to be thought of in that category, like really cool by people that think that way? I hope not. We're trying to get to heaven and without reference to what people think, but to what God thinks. So don't worry about what other people think. Worry about what God thinks. Okay, third, so we've got to avoid as much as possible speaking confidentially with one another. Write it down, the amount of time. And guy, if you're courting a girl, you go talk to her dad and, and, and talk about these kind of things. And dad, don't give it a lot of time, you know. I mean, people have the right to keep, uh, if, 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 if they're courting and got the permission, all that, they have the right to keep uh, the attachment going, the affections going, but they don't have the right to just talk like they're married, or, you know. They don't. There shouldn't be that much access to each other because it's dangerous. And we're talking about eternity. There shouldn't be that much access. Again, I'm not saying that it's bad, but it's a necessary near occasion of sin. We've got to be careful. What I want you to do is go to the altar, peer, both of you. You present yourself before God, peer. No damage. Respected each other, respected God. Then when you come down off the altar, the blessings you've got in that marriage will carry you through whatever is coming our way. But you don't want to have all these wounds and damage and all that stuff and come up there kind of, you know, up there, as it were, two people on gurneys rolling up to the altar and out spiritually. No. You want to be pure and holy and healthy so that you can present yourself and your soon-to-be spouse pure before God and say, I handled this person the way you would have me do it. I respected them. And that's why these rules, you, you limit the amount of time. In the beginning, everything's possible. You're all day fine. You limit the amount of time. You won't fall out of love because you're talking less. I'm not saying not talk at all, but you control it. And it shouldn't be hours every day. No way. No way. If you, if you got something like that, you're going to be in trouble. If you're talking two or three hours every day over a course of a long time, it's going to be trouble. It will. Okay. Anyway. We don't want to be rigorous, but we got to respect the fact that we're wounded. All right. Third natural means of making sure the near occasion is made remote. Avoid as much as possible of looking at one another. Well, I mean, you've got to be careful not just sit there and just, eh, you know, we have to have muck. And this applies more to the guys now. You know, obviously, when they're selling cars, it's not a half-dressed guy laying out there on the hood of the car, is it, huh? <laughs> guys, girls are weak here and guys are weak there. We've got to be careful. We just, it's just reality. So, you know. If we dress right, deport ourselves like human beings that have been redeemed by Christ our Lord, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean you all have to look like fall leaves, you know, or dead brown things and stuff like that. You can be colorful. I mean, women are the flowers in the world. That's what Saint Therese is—the little flower, huh? But all these flowers, huh? So you're not all Carmelites. That's fine. You can dress colorfully and all that. But you know, not—it's got to be a fair fight, okay? So. 
got to be modesty. No, it's got to be a fair fight, okay? And then the guys, you got to control your eyes, huh? So you don't just sit there and just, you know, of course uh, you, you want to look. Don't. Okay, so having said that, what does supernatural means? The first one is making it remote by praying to God and the Blessed Virgin for help to resist temptation. If you're not already doing it, the three Hail Marys in the morning, you say them for holiness and purity. Any other virtue you need, but holiness and purity during the day in the morning. And then before you go to bed at night, three Hail Marys, same thing. And up the ante, if, if you, there's any struggle at all, you take your fingers like this, you put them on the floor, and you kneel on your fingertips and say, don't do it if your brothers or sisters in the room. That's, that's you know, we're not trying to show off. But, uh, but this is a good penance, a uh, little mortification. It won't cripple you, you know, it hurts, that's the object. And you're asking our lady, you know, all right, I'm doing something, help me with this. You know, this is really going to help. I'm not joking at all. I'll, I'll do, St. Alphonsus, St. Anthony. Those are two doctors of the church, St. Anthony Mary Claret, St. Philip Mary, St. Gertrude the Great, St. Matilda, uh, uh, St. Leonard of Port Morris. Those are just ones that are coming off the top of my head that all preached this. St. Alphonsus thought so highly of this that he'd give it as a penance to every one of his penitents that didn't have the practice. It's essential. We're living in raw sewage. It's not going to get better anytime unless the consecration, the Blessed Virgin comes down and does something. The cultures, you know... We, we ain't seen nothing yet. We're in free fall, okay? It's not going to get better. We do this, the Blessed Virgin will protect us, okay? She loves us. She'll protect us. Not to be worried, but three Hail Marys. I've timed it. We're talking 40 seconds, okay? This is not a big investment in your future in terms of time. You can do it. 40 seconds. If you have a hard time remembering, if you're the kind of family, you know, where we come from, we leave the boots at the door, so you do something with your belt. If you, if you wear your shoes in the house, throw one under the bed. When you're doing it, you'll remember to say the three Hail Marys when you do it. When you get it out in the morning, you'll remember to say three Hail Marys. Or jockey around your belt or something, you know. So when you're, when you're taking off your clothes tonight, you remember, oh, you know, i got to say those. Once you get the habit, it'll be a habit. And then you don't have to worry about it anymore, okay? Say those three Hail Marys. How hard is that? Say the rosary. Say the rosary every day. If you're going to be, look, we got, I'll, I'll go, I won't go for a whole 20 minutes on that, but I'll just say this. Our Lady wasn't bored in heaven and going, I wonder what they're doing in Portugal today when she came down to Fatima. She's the mother of God. She came down because she knew we needed to know something. The important point to take home today is we say the rosary every day. If we say the rosary every day, whatever is going to happen, we'll be all right. We're tied on deck. You know, the ark that's the church. All, all these storms that are going, it doesn't matter. We, even if we wash overboard, she'll put us back on. She's in charge. You know, we're not going to go anywhere. You just tie yourself on with that rosary every day. Okay, I am saying a 15 to 20 minute prayer. All right, big deal. We're talking about eternity. So that thing, prayer. Second, uh, uh, supernatural means. Frequent confession. Fervent communion. If you've got a vocation, in my vocation, it's in our rule. We have to go to confession every week. That's in our constitutions. Okay. Well, marriage is a call to holiness. It's a vocation. That means God expects you to become a saint. Why not? All right, then go at least every two weeks. All right, I'm over the wall with every week. Go every two weeks. And then start going every week as soon as you get used to that. But uh, go to confession. And then when you go to communion, your communions are going to be holier, holy communions. Have a motive for going to holy communion. Pray for holiness. Pray for healing of whatever your principal fault is. So you're praying for it. When you go up to communion, you receive our Lord. Then you talk to Him for the whole time He's there. Make me holy. Make my fiancé, this girl I'm courting, this guy I'm courting, make them holy. If you, if you know you have a vocation and you don't know who it is, tell our Lord, I want to meet this virtuous and holy spouse that you planned for me from all eternity. How hard is that? He's got a plan. He knows who it is. We don't have to worry. You've got to pray for it. If you, if, if, you're, if you know that you have a vocation to marriage, you should be praying every day, especially in communion. He's in charge. Send me 
that virtuous woman or that virtuous man that you've planned from all eternity that I'll be married to. You don't think God's going to hear that prayer? You're trying to become holy. You know this is his will for you to become holy in, in the state of holy matrimony. Why not be praying for him before you meet? You could tell somebody, I've been praying for you for years, and it'll be true. You should be doing that. And especially at communion. You're prayed up before you get there. You're prayed up before you get there. We had seven years to pray for our penitents in the seminary. That's a long time. You can be praying right now. Start praying right now. I, I'm not wishing seven years on if you have a vocation of marriage and you're already in your 20s or something. You know, if you're 14, that's fine. But uh, pray now. Okay, so that part being said, <clears throat> get a shot of water. So courtship is a necessary near occasion of sin. Since it's necessary, we can put ourselves in it. Since it's an irritation of sin, we have to use the proper precautions. But since it's an irritation of sin, we can't put ourselves in it until we're actually capable of being married or fairly close to it. I mean, you know, if somebody's going to be a tradesman and he's just finishing up whatever, okay, fine. He can be earning stuff soon. That's fine. But uh, we're talking about within reason. Okay, so we talked about that. What to look for. I've got a, a book. Uh, I just brought this one on purpose because I'm going to actually read things from it. it it's, it's so good. It's written by a, a Hungarian bishop. I'm going to mispronounce it. My apologies to all Hungarians here. T. Hammer Toth. It's a Christian family. It's written 70 years ago. And uh, with that being said, I'm just going to read a few uh, quotes from it because what are we looking for when we're looking for someone uh, when we have a vocation to holy matrimony? Let me get to the right page. I want to make a few comments, but... I'll read this. Here's the bishop. An old priest grown gray in the many years of his ministry was once asked, what among all his manifold priestly duties had had the greatest effect on him? And the worthy man replied, the marrying of a young couple or the burying of a mother. For never at other times did I see so clearly the immense responsibility that married life signifies for the earthly and eternal destiny of entire generations. It's true. It's unbelievable the power that God has put in the hands of a man and a woman in holy matrimony. This creative power. He gives us a share in a sanctifying power to make things holy, forgive sins, huh? to bring him bodily to earth. But he gives a married man, a married woman, a share in his creative power to cooperate with him in bringing new life at a natural level into the world. It's really worth meditating on this amazing power. Because what are we talking? We're talking about babies. We know that. But think about the dignity of a baby. It's absolutely unbelievable. When you when you think about it, this is a being that will this world will fall away. All the great works, all the books, all the statues, all the great skyscrapers, bridges, anything that man has done is going to crumble to dust and be blown away. But a baby will live forever. It's unbelievable the dignity that man has been entrusted with. The joint custody of that creative power, man and a woman, in holy matrimony. It's unbelievable when you think on it. I'll try not to talk on that. I could, you could literally, it's something to meditate on because it's so Amazing. A baby 
will live forever. That he's got an eternal, he's got an immortal soul. God loved from all eternity and brought into being because he wanted that man and that woman to bring that baby into being. Okay. The bishop says, who would not feel for this very reason how vitally important it is to ensure as far as possible the success of marriage? Ensure the success of marriage, someone might say. Ah, marriage is like fried chicken. One chooses a piece haphazardly and never knows what one has chosen. Some individuals dispose of the question with such witticisms, but the subject is too important to be disposed of in this way. It is true that no one can see into another person's heart, yet certain signs permit one at least to draw conclusions about its contents. He's going to talk about signs in the man and signs in the woman. So the first one is signs in the man. What a woman, and I'll, I'll make some other comments after that, but this is what a, a young woman, some of the things you should be looking for. The sign in the man, a great love of work, a serious sense of duty and honor. If these qualities are to be found in the bridegroom, then we can look upon the contemplated marriage without any misgivings. But if they are missing, young woman, do not marry him for all the treasures in the world. Bishop, 70 years ago. Nor should you speak foolish to some woman. I see how lacking in seriousness my fiancé is, but I shall marry him because I am madly in love with him. This madness will quickly pass, and there will be a dreadful and speedy awakening. Okay. Marriage is not an experiment. Marriage is a weighty responsibility. And this thought should be many times repeated and emphasized. Because today, and he's writing in the 1930s, we are grieved at the spreading of such ideas as these. Marriage is my private affair. No one has any right to interfere. Marriage is a mere agreement for a limited period. Marriage is a licensing of sensual pleasures and so forth. Today, many people do not wish to hear anything about responsibility. Of the responsibility that ensues upon marriage for both parties concerned and for the bodily and spiritual welfare of future generations, they wish to hear nothing. Okay, so the young man. Great level of work, serious sense of duty, honor. Young woman. However important it is that a bride should convince herself that this great sense of responsibility is possessed by her future husband, it is no less important that the bridegroom should be convinced that his future wife possesses the necessary modesty and love of home life. In the Old Testament, we read about an edifying betrothed couple. They are Tobias and Sarah. Tobias said to his bride before their marriage, Sarah, arise and let us pray to God today and tomorrow and the next day. For we are the children of saints. And we must not be joined together like heathens that know not God. But the parting admonition that Sarah receives from her father is most instructive. After the wedding has been solemnized, the young people take leave of the bride's parents and are about to set out for Tobias's home. Then Sarah's father says to Tobias, The holy angel of the Lord be with you in your journey and bring you through safe, and that you may find all things well about your parents, and my eyes may ever see your children before I die. And the parents, taking their daughter, kissed her and let her go, admonishing her to honor her father and mother-in-law, to love her husband, to take care of the family, to govern the house, and to behave herself irreprehensibly. It's right out of the scriptures. Every bride might well ask herself whether this is her way of thinking. Okay. I'll, I'll just uh, skip by. He's got a lot of different things. Third requirement of good husbands and wives. Young man should be imbued with a sense of his responsibility. The woman should be home-loving. And both should be sincerely devout. Why is it important my husband should be devout? It is important that she be strong and healthy, that he should have a good income, blah, 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 blah. I do not see why my, what it matters if my future husband is not devout. Anyone who reasons in this thoughtless way before the wedding speedily wakes after the wedding the realization of what a difference it makes because the husband or wife is not devout. The two in marriage must become one. So very much one that we cannot find another example of such unity 
in the whole world. As only with God can man become perfectly one, the wish for perfect union with your life's companion can be attained only if you meet in God and unite in Him. And it's already hard enough for very good people. It's hard. A vocation. Thanks to Adam, vocation as a priest, we've got to work, huh? It's the way of the cross. It doesn't matter what vocation you're in. It's the way of the cross. You get married before an altar. I, I lay prostrate before an altar before I got ordained, Father and I did. That's how it works. Where everything happens in the shadow of the cross. We're going to follow our Lord's bloody footsteps to Calvary. Everyone here that's going to heaven. It's going to be tough. It's not impossible. It talks about this. But there's clouds. There, there will be clouds. But, anyway, he's, he's making the point. Do not do that. And then he says, A religious woman should not marry a man who is irreligious. Regrettably, however, nowadays the reverse of this question often comes up for consideration. So a religious man marry an irreligious woman. An irreligious woman... Is the idea not far-fetched? Is there such a thing as an irreligious woman? He could ask that in the 1930s. He says, I regret to say that modern life has produced such women. A few moments ago, I said that a religious woman should not marry an irreligious man. Now I must say with twice as much emphasis that a religious man should not make an irreligious woman his wife, not for anything in the world. For if a man loses his faith, his soul becomes coarse and material, but if a woman loses her faith, her soul becomes devilish. This is an important point. I want to talk about that. A good woman is like when we when we contemplate her in the right way. It's we see refractions of the Blessed Virgin in her. Huh? She's modeled after the Blessed Virgin somehow. But a woman is either good or bad. She's either going to be to the society at large. She's either going to be like the Blessed Virgin, striving for that, or she's going to be like Eve. You can measure the level of society. The moral level of a society by the women. God made man to be the leader and strong physically. The woman is the moral center of a society. She has the moral strength. If the level of the woman is here in society on average, the level of men is there. The level of woman's here, the level of men's there, the level of woman's there, the level of man's there, and so forth. That is your particular genius and gift that God's given you, is to be the moral part of society. A man will never look at a woman as his equal. He will look up to her or look down at her. That's human psychology. And every man instinctively wants a good man, someone that he can look up to. It does not mean his boss. We'll get to that in a minute. He wants someone he can look up to. What the man is looking for is someone that's better than him. An examination of conscience where he says, I can't believe that she's in love with me. Look what happened to Adam. Adam was perfect and Eve took him out when she fell. He's perfect. A man is not going to be stronger morally on the average. On the average than the woman. The woman is the heart of this, huh? It's so important. It's so important. He's going to be like the Blessed Virgin or Eve. She's going to be like an examination of conscience, huh? So, the man is looking for someone to lead, to provide for, to protect, and to sacrifice himself for. A man who has a vocation is looking for someone to lead, to provide for, to protect, and to sacrifice himself for. And he wants somebody that he can sacrifice himself for. The whole idea of these chivalry stories, chivalry could only come out of Christendom, huh? The dignity of the woman because of the Blessed Virgin. It's been restored by Christ our Lord. 
And the whole notion of the chivalry, in, in that sense, there's a lot of different aspects to it, but in this sense, is he is looking for somebody that's like Our Lady, that he can really sacrifice himself for. And the genius of the woman is to allow, not to step off her pedestal and not try to boss. If you try to boss, this is important too. All of a sudden you take the role of the other woman in his life that he respects, but he left, and that's his mom. Don't do that. It's like, waltzing is a good uh, comparison. When you're waltzing, there's two people in a waltz, or it's not a waltz. The guy's got to leave. I used to teach my students, and I'd tell them, walk away and leave her there. She'll learn. I know that sounds rude, but uh, if she's going to try to lead, you just have to leave her. You know, he said, don't do that a couple times and then leave. There can only be one leader in a waltz, huh? Or you're not waltzing. You're doing I don't know what. But if you're having a wrestling match out there, that's not waltzing. She has to fall. But it's not as if she's not important. It's not a waltz without her. It, you know, <laughs> he has to go ask her, etc. But there's a whole there's a whole beauty of that. You can think of that as an analogy in, in the marriage, too. He wants to waltz, but he wants to lead you, ladies. That's how it works. But if you're the moral center of the, of the universe, in his universe, if you really are striving to be an imitation of Our Lady, a good man will do anything, including die, for you. That's that's how that's the power that God has given man, and that's the power God's given. Man. So there's this symmetry, and our society is just crazy. It's obsessed with manhood. It, it's lost femininity. Feminism is all about men. It's ridiculous. It's an obsession with men. It's totally denigrating the absolute beauty and power and dignity of of woman and the moral power. It takes morality out of the picture. So throw that out of your head and, 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 and meditate on what it is to be like the Blessed Virgin, huh? That's what we we need to recover, that sort of an idea, to be like Our Lady. Let me get a drink. I see. I'm going to try. I, I promised I'd try to go within an hour, and I'm, I'm getting there, so I'll try not to go over. Okay. So those are just a few things to think about in, in, the, and in terms of what to look for. You want to look for somebody that's virtuous on either side, but you want to look especially for someone that's trying to be holy. They've got to be virtuous of the natural level. They're trying to be holy. Virtuous, trying to be holy. The guy has to have a strong love of work. The woman should have a love for being in the home. Huh? So what's the primary end of marriage? We go all the way back again. Procreation, education of children, mutual help and comfort, and remedy for concupiscence. Okay, now I'm going to talk about the last thing on morality. This might go a little bit over, but I don't care. We'll spend the time. I might have to pull it out. I want to read something from the Pope. Okay, here we go. We've already briefly talked about this, though. Consider this amazing thing that God has entrusted man and woman with this creative power to bring immortal beings into life. You know, God didn't have to do it that way. He could just keep making people from scratch just like he did in the beginning. He didn't have to do it. He's God. But he chose to do that. Huh? So it's a blessing. He blessed man and woman, the first man and woman, sit and, and told them, be fruitful, multiply. That was his blessing. Bring forth new immortal beings. Okay? But that's supposed to all take place within the confines of holy matrimony. All right. Now, I want to read something from Pius XI. This is an encyclical on Christian marriage. If you have a vocation marriage, you should read it. I'm going to read one thing and make a couple comments. Again, the primary end of marriage is procreation and education of children. 
since the duty entrusted to parents is such of high dignity, is of such high dignity and of such great importance, every use of the faculty given by God for the procreation of new life is the right and the privilege of the married state alone, by the law of God and of nature, must be absolutely confined within the sacred limits of that state. Okay. If we understand that, we can work out everything the Catholic Church teaches with regards to the Sixth and Ninth Commandments. Okay, but let me read, uh, let me uh, just talk about one thing. It won't corrupt anybody here. This will be modest. I'll talk about one sin. And once we understand this one sin, we'll understand all the possibilities. Now, this is from Pope Alexander VII. So it's not me. But speaking of people who are not married to one another, this is about the unmarried. Pope Alexander VII condemned as a moral error the following opinion. Now, I'm going to read this. This is condemned by the Pope before I read it. It is only venially sinful to kiss someone for a carnal and sensual pleasure arising from the kiss, provided there's no danger of further consent and of going even farther. I, I changed the words there because it's a little more detailed. Close quote, condemned by the Vicar of Christ. Again, the idea that it's only venially sinful for the unmarried to kiss for the sensual pleasure arising from the kiss, even if there's no danger of further consent and going farther is condemned. It's condemned. What does that mean when we say this has been condemned? St. Alphonsus comments on this very papal condemnation. Quote, This means that every time someone with sufficient reflection and consent of the will delights in carnal or sensual pleasure associated with someone to whom he is not married, he commits a mortal sin. This is true, not only true with kisses, but also with respect to other touches performed for carnal pleasure. The reason is that any delight taken in carnal pleasure, that is to say any delight taken in stirring up the appetites that surround the creative power, is a movement towards the marital act. Close quote, Doctor of Moral Theology of the Universal Church. It's condemned to say it's only venial sinful for people who are not married to one another to kiss for the carnal and sensual pleasure which arises from the kiss, even if there is no danger of further consent or going even farther. Hold that thought. Now you can see why all this stuff on your occasion of sin, being careful, don't spend time alone. All you can see where all this goes. You know, all this stuff. It's all related. It's one thing. But we're we're going to close with these kind of things. I'll talk about it. Every time, therefore, every time someone with sufficient reflection and full consent of the will delights in carnal or sensual pleasure associated with someone to whom he's not married, he commits mortal sin. It's true also with respect to other touches which stir up carnal pleasure. The reason is that any delight taken in stirring up the appetites that surround the creative power is a movement towards the marital act which is completely reserved to the married. In other words, for the unmarried, passionate kissing is mortally sinful. Why? Because it's passionate. Because it's passionate. The unmarried don't have the right to deliberately stir up those passions, whether by thought or word or deed. Those passions, those delights, those pleasures are strictly reserved for the married and no one else. Once we understand that, we don't have to go through the laundry list. We've got everything else underneath that. Okay? Once we understand that, we don't have to go through the laundry list. You can also see how radically countercultural this is. You can't... I mean, I, I don't know, because... Well, I did... I saw about five minutes of TV this summer. I don't know, Blow that thing up. I mean, I can't believe it. We're, we're watching some nature program at somebody's house and on comes a commercial and the two priests are running around like, you know, trying, how do we unplug it? You know, we run around, what's going on? You know? 
blow the thing out. What do you have that's... But anyway, you can't watch anything without something that's so far over the wire already, just with the... You know, I, you know how can any normal man watch that stuff? I have no idea. Well, he can't. I do have an idea. That's the answer. But okay, all the more if we're in love with somebody. This is not somebody you're in love with. This is a stupid piece of furniture sitting in somebody's living room. I mean, the people on TV are our friends. That's a piece of furniture. And it's putting people in hell. Don't, don't have that. But anyway, going back to this. When, and, and I want to say this right now because every time I talk about this, and I'm deliberately not looking too many people in the eyes, uh, when people discover that privilege... Uh, there, now I can. Passionate kissing is a privilege of the married. And in a mortal sense of the unmarried, there's usually a number of people that just... Their whole face goes... <laughs> I'm not laughing at them at all, but you, oh, you, know, you want to start looking down. Because I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. You know? I, I'm trying to help you be good. Not feel good. I don't care how you feel right now. It's not my job to worry about your feelings. You can go to a doctor. I'm here to help you be good. And if you've been in this kind of trouble, okay, it's a little reminder to anybody that's panicking. If you didn't know this before, it wasn't a mortal sin. Remember, you have to have the knowledge. There has to be the sufficient reflection. But now it will be. It's over. Okay? Remember that. Okay? So you're safe. Ha, ha, ha. Ignorance saved you, but not again. Okay, now you're not ignorant. Okay, so if you didn't know passionate kissing was against rules and maybe going over the over the fence, don't do it again. You can see why. Okay, all right. So you have to commit a mortal sin, you have to know something seriously wrong. If you didn't know, you can relax. Okay, be at peace, but go and sin no more. Huh? We had somebody say that. All right. The problem with passionate kissing is the basic moral principle here applies to all thoughts, words, and deeds. All pleasure outside of marriage that's associated with the creative power. All of it. All that kind of pleasure that's directly willed or desired, intentionally procured or permitted, is a mortal sin. It's mortally sinful for the unmarried to think, say, or do anything with the intention of arousing even the smallest degree of this type of sensual pleasure. Okay. Now, let's just do... I, uh, in order to get this and the principles firmly in your mind... I'll just talk, uh, you know, right here about it. Let's say, like, uh, something happens that's, that's stirring these kind of feelings up, okay? If there's no, uh, a glance. Somebody sees something, you know, they have, uh, they, they accidentally saw TV, didn't know it was on TV, and they're running around like chickens with their head cut off trying to turn it off. But anyway, so if there's no intention in that glass, it's accidental, no consent to any pleasure, there's no sin. So, okay, you can remember that. Make a little chart. I guess I'll go this way because that would be the way you read. No intention, no consent, no sin. No intention, some consent, mild consent, venial sin. No intention, full consent, all right, mortal sin. Direct intention, mortal sin. So they know there's going to be a really bad program, can't wait, turn it on, mortal sin. You know. All right. Or they didn't know it was on, all right, it's on, okay, mortal sin. Uh, no intention, some consent, venial sin, no intention, no consent, no sin. Okay? Makes sense? That's, that's how it is. So if there's no intention, no consent, no sin, no intention, faint consent, venial sin, no intention, full consent, mortal sin, direct intention, mortal sin. Direct intention, the difference between no intention, direct intention, direct, you're intending to watch this bad movie, you're intending to read this bad book, you're intending to go to the grocery store and buy one of those trash magazines and read all the bad parts, okay? Alright, any pleasure outside marriage associated with the creative power, every bit of it that's directly willed or desired, intentionally procured or permitted, is a mortal sin. Common objection. Father, everybody does it. 
That's not a convincing argument. Just try it on your mom. It doesn't work. Your mom can't be any different than mine. All Catholic mothers are the same. My dad would uh, be a little more strong about it. My mom would uh, stop that. Okay. Father, no one can live like this. Naturally speaking, that's true, and especially in a society like ours. That's true at the level of nature. That's why you can tell right away when there's almost no grace in society, it starts acting like ours. And ours is worse than, than it because we've really embraced the darkness in here, huh? That's why we talk about three Hail Marys. That's why we talk about saying your rosary. That's why we talk about going to confession. That's why we talk about going to communion. You can live like this. You, it, you can live like this. Even if it's a battle, you, you, you battle, you'll be able to live like this. What if we really like each other, Father? Presumably, you wouldn't want to passionately kiss somebody you didn't like. But we're already engaged. That's all the more reason to be even more careful. When you're already engaged, priests worry even more. I mean, don't think priests quit worrying. Till the, you quit worrying right after they say, I do. Then you're not worried anymore. But you're freaking out until that point in time, unless you're just brain dead as a priest. You want to make sure that people get before God right. And that's, that's our job as the spiritual fathers. That's where it tells us. We want you to present yourselves, as St. Paul talks about, a chaste virgin before Christ. Okay. Oh, Father, are you saying we can't kiss at all? No, unmarried people can kiss. It's not necessarily a good idea, and they don't have to, but they can. And the kind of kisses allowed to unmarried people are like the kisses you see the Russians do, 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 or the one you'd give your great-grandma or something like that, that little one on the cheek. You know, I'm not recommending it, because even that could be electric or something. You know, people are in love. I'm not recommending it, you know. But, but uh, that, that, that's it. That's not a passionate kiss, like a social kind of kiss, you know. I, I say, you know, out, out east, the Italians kiss each other on the cheek as a social kind of thing. You know, the, the, the women will present themselves to the guy. I mean, I'm from Montana. I'd want to punch somebody if it was my girlfriend. Keep your hands off her. But, uh, but that's where I'm from, you know. But anyway, that's a social kiss, so it's all right, all right? Okay, so let's not be doing any of that. Now we know. I don't have to go through any other lists. You know everything. This from the Pope. I didn't make it up. It's not being a rigorist. Uh, we're not rigorous. That's just nonsense. But we have to know what reality is. I'm going to close by reading something here from the bishop because it's, it's something that a good meditation from a bishop on what the kind of thing we ought to be thinking about. It is a great joy if a wife can say to her husband, I can thank you that I have a strong support in life, that I have such good children. It's a great joy if a husband can say to his wife, I can thank you that I have such an understanding life companion and such a peaceful home. But the greatest joy of all will be if someday they can say to each other, I can thank you that I have attained eternal life. God bless you. If you kneel down, I'll give you a blessing. Pax et benedictus et tentis, patris et filii et spiritus sancti, shan super vos, et maniat semper. Amen.